And now, the Street Photography Magazine podcast with your host, Bob Patterson. And welcome back. Our guest this week is Suitcase Joe. That's right, that's his name. And uh, Suitcase Joe is in the Los Angeles area. He is a, well, he's a street photographer, but he's a lot more than that. He uh, documents the uh, life of the people in the community of Skid Row in Los Angeles. And uh, he's doing, you know, he's doing great work to help other people. And uh, he's even just recently published a book with uh, some of the photos that uh, that he's uh, created um, documenting this community for a really posterity, I guess you might want to say. Well, anyway, Joe, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's good. Been wanting to get together for a while. I'm glad we finally made it happen. And uh, I saw, you know, a, a copy of your book a while ago, and I knew that uh, we had to get you on here, uh, not only to talk about just your photography work, but, you know, what it's like photographing in, um, you know, a community that actually needs a lot of help. So I, before we get into that, I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of your background. Uh, as a photographer, and how and why you're doing what you're doing in the community. Sure. Um, so uh, I started going to Skid Row about 10 years ago. Uh, I wasn't really actively photographing it in the beginning. Um, I would just I was kind of fascinated with the neighborhood. Um, you know, I have kind of a love for. Uh, like old hobo culture, as well as street photography and, and a bunch of other kind of niche things. Uh, but I would go to Skid Row and uh, I just, I was very fascinated by the the neighborhood. And so I went to a few friends who were, who were professional photographers and I said, um, or well-known photographers and what they do. And, and I just said, hey, you guys, uh, you guys should photograph and document Skid Row. And basically the response I got from people uh, was, you know, you're crazy. We're not, I'm not going into Skid Row. It's, you know, it, the neighborhood's awful. The people are awful. You're going to get robbed or I would get robbed. And I, so after a while, as my fascination grew with the neighborhood, I, and I started to have really an idea in my head, what I wanted my photos to look like and how I wanted to share it. You know, I just realized I, I should be the one that, that, that photographs it. Um, you know, and I was, I was thinking of like Dorothy Lang and, you know, I'm also a big fan of Vivian Mayer and, uh, and I, I had like an idea how I wanted my photos to look, but originally I set out, you know, I just wanted, I was just thinking about it historically. Uh, I wanted to record for historical archives and, uh, I, I started going in there doing just that. But as time went on, I, I started to really get to know people in the neighborhood and, and I started to form friendships. And as I started to really get to know people, I became invested really in the reasons that they, you know, became unhoused. And because of that, I, I started to become more of an activist for the neighborhood as well. And the unhoused community, which led to, you know, me having set up a foundation. Um, so it just kind of grew from there, but really just went in there to, to document it historically it came out of there with now it pretty much is my life. Yeah. It sounds all consuming. Um, yeah. One thing I want to ask is we have, uh, you know, we have a very active Facebook group, got several thousand people in there, and everybody usually gets along and they're really cooperative. But if you want to start a fight, 
all you have to do is post a photo of a homeless person. Right. And then everybody's chiming in. You shouldn't do that. Yes, I should. Yeah, I have a right to do it, that they're in a public space and it goes back and forth. And in fact, in our magazine, we will rarely publish individual photos of homeless people, you know, drive-by photos, uh, I like to call them. And uh, the only time we will is if it's part of a story about the community. And I just wondered, how do you feel about that? Uh, well, I have some very strong feelings about that. Um, so I, I, I definitely very much understand the point of view of people who don't think you should take photographs of houseless individuals. And I agree with a lot of them because I think a lot of people do it in a very exploitive way. Uh, a drive-by is probably the worst way you can do it. If you're not willing to get out of your car and, and and go up and meet them and have a conversation with them, then you should not be taking their photo. Uh, even moreover, I think some people do it for... I see a lot of people who come out to, to help in the houseless neighborhoods and communities and take a lot of photos, but they're really documenting what they're doing for their own self gain. Uh, and this is part of why I do it to be anonymous. Um, I really want it to be about, I want to be a platform to help people tell their stories and share where they're coming. And what I want to do is bridge the gap between the way a lot of people who are housed look and feel about the unhoused community and just close that gap. Um, but the other thing I feel very strongly about is that, I think a great photograph or a very telling photograph can really can really change uh, the whole conversation. And, and I had a photograph that I was I held on to for a few years before I published it, um, which was uh, of a man in Skid Row who who OD'd, and you know he's lying in the street and he's naked, and there's, there's like water rushing over his feet, and it's it's raining, and it's a very powerful photograph. Also, one I can understand why people wouldn't, you know, they would feel have strong feelings about me not posting it. But I, I ultimately, I, I, I came to the conclusion that this happened, and people need to be aware that this is happening. And if people aren't aware that this is happening, then there can be nothing done to to begin to to go about changing the things that make people end up in these situations. So as as I feel, I feel strongly as a photographer that, especially, you know, a street or documentarian or journalistic photographers, it, it's a job. It's a responsibility for us to take photos of these things and share that information. And and if people are people shouldn't be mad about anybody taking these photos, they should be upset about what's happening in the photo and what causes those things to happen. It, it really has nothing to do with the photographer. You know, I think there's a respectful way about going out and putting out your work. And the way you talk about it and, you know, and what you decide to do with it. Uh, I also have, I, I don't profit from any of my photos. Uh, I give everything back to Skid Row. Um, I also have a foundation. I don't take any money from my foundation. So I, I don't make money from the things that I do. And, uh, and I, I use all that money to, to reinvest into helping the neighborhood. And, and if I think if somebody was doing what I did and they were just making a ton of money off of it, I, I would have a problem with that personally as well. Yeah, you know, you're right. No matter who you photograph, I think it's important to be respectful of them and to respect them as human beings. And I guess if you're not willing to look them in the eye, then maybe you shouldn't be making the photo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that could also depend on the, the situation. I, I 
I think I find war photography very, very fascinating. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I think it's really important to document that and to share it with the world. Um, I wouldn't expect them to necessarily be able to, to meet with the enemies on the enemy lines. Well, that's uh, true. Yeah. You know, but obviously, but, you know, it, I see a lot of people during everything that's going on with, with currently with uh, BLM and, and even here in Los Angeles, there's been a lot of, you know, the houseless community, a big part of it was removed from a, a, a lake and there's a lot of protests and um, hmm. there's a lot of people out there photographing it. And uh, I appreciate all of them. You know, there's a ton of them, <laughs> but uh, we got to do it. We got to share that info. I'd like to digress a bit. You, you've used the term unhoused and houseless. And, I'm, you know, I, and I've been using the term homeless. Is there a, a difference? No, uh, be, homeless has just become, I guess, uh, seen and felt as a bit of derogatory. Mm-hmm, um, I see. Okay. So, you know, uh, uh, a lot of these people, I mean, they have homes. Their homes are on the street or, you know, they are, I guess, I, I don't know what it is exactly that homeless has become such a kind of just seen as a bad term. So I'm just kind of, I call them unhoused. Usually I just call them street residents. I mean, that's how I... I mean, that's just something mm-hmm. I've always said about people in Skid Row. You know, they, that is where they live. They live on the streets. They're street residents. Yeah, yeah that's true. That makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. Um, you were talking about some of the, you know, uh, other photographers who've influenced you, uh, like Dorothea Lang. And I just wondered, are you familiar with, uh, with uh, John Free? I believe he's in the Los, Los Angeles area. He did a lot of photography. Years ago, uh, with you know what they what they uh, termed hobos, uh, you know, lived. Oh wow! Uh, I, lived on the rails. I haven't. I probably have seen his stuff and something, but I'm not. I'm not oh, familiar, and uh, I definitely will look him up. Yeah, it's really worth worth looking up. I've I've been wanting to reach out to him and try to get him on on here. He's done a number of YouTube videos, and pretty fascinating. And, and what's he his got name? very close with the, with the people um, in that world and uh, did, did some amazing work, I, I think. Yeah, that's a, also a community that the train hopping community is, um, you know, a lot of people, they don't want a ton of people coming in there and documenting it. Uh, they don't want it becoming mm-hmm. super exploited. Uh, it's something they protect. So I'm sure if this guy is able to get in there, then, you know, he, um, he must speak the language and know how to go about it the right way uh yeah yeah i'll um i should probably uh include a link to one of his videos in in the show notes for this uh for the show and of course i'll send it to you too because you might be interested in watching it especially since you're in the same area yes definitely um also another another person is david winkler who is a retired los angeles police officer who became close with many people in uh, uh, in that part of town, and after he retired, began to work with them and and help support them and and document uh, document their lives as well, similar to you. And uh, have you ever run into him in your work? I, I haven't. Um, also, somebody else's work I'd love to check out. Um, you know, when I started taking photos, I. Um, I I stopped looking at other 
photographer's work for many years. I, I, yeah. I've started again, but um, I really didn't want to be influenced by anybody. I didn't want to hear about how anybody was doing anything. Uh, I kind of like to get hyper-focused on things. And, and when I do that, I just, my creative process is really to shout out everybody for a little while, left and right, what they're saying, and just, just do what I do the way I want to do it. You know, however it's received is how it'll be received, perceived and received. But, but yeah, I'm just starting in the last few years again to like really look at a lot of people's work. And, and now that I feel like I've kind of established my own style. Yeah. And how long have you been doing this? Uh, Skid Row, I've about six or seven years now. Oh, a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I always took photos, but again, never very, never really thought of myself as a photographer in any sort of way. Well, you are. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I bestow that title upon you, photographer. <laughs> it's Appreciate official it. now. All right. Finally. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I wonder if you could share with us the scale, the size of Skid Row. I mean, many of us in other cities, you know, we have maybe a, a block. Or, yeah. You know, part of town where you, you see a number of unhoused people. Right. But, uh, I mean, how large is it? Well, Skid Row is, is four square miles, and I believe it's 52 city blocks um, that, it, that has actually been designated for, you know, the unhoused community. Um, now, the population fluctuates. I've seen it, you know, it's been as high as 17,000, 10,000. They recently put out a lower number. I was like around 4,000, but I, I'm almost certain that this number was um, just created to, to make it look like the city was, wasn't was as in bad a shape as we are. I don't know if you guys know also, uh, Los Angeles County has over 60,000 houseless residents. Uh, and, wow. that's, and that's more than the entire uh, 49 states combined. We have more houseless people here Oh, sorry, in the state of California than all the other 49 states. But we are the epicenter of it. Um, but so, yeah, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's four, four square miles, 52 blocks, and, you know, a number of thousands and thousands of people. Um, and it was kind of designed to be that. In, uh, in 1975, it was called a policy of containment act was put through. And that was basically to put all your social service resources in, in one condensed area um, to kind of keep all the, you know, the, at the time, how they looked at it, like vagabonds and, and, and all the, the hobos and people who kind of came to that area to, to just kind of, they just wanted to keep them there, keep the rest of LA beautiful. And so it kind of became this easy place to turn a blind eye. Like you don't have to, don't go to Skid Row unless you have to be be there for a reason. And, uh, and and what they really did was solidified it becoming, you know, what it is today, which is the biggest houseless neighborhood in, in America. Um, because of those resources, it draws a lot of people there, and it draws and those people end up drawing a lot of other people there for other various reasons. But um, yeah, I've heard that. I don't know if it's the police or you know, welfare department, whatever actually takes people there and drops them off. You know, that happens. And something else that's happened happens is the hospital's patient dump there. Um, so when they have, yeah, they'll have people that come in a lot of time, with mental health issues, don't have anywhere to go after they're treated. 
the hospital can't hold them. Where do they take them? They don't know where to take them. They have vans and they take them and literally just drop them right into Skid Row. You'll see them there with their wristbands still on and sometimes their, you know, their blue hospital gowns. It's, it's kind of wild. And then, you know, the jail, there's a, the Twin Towers, a Los Angeles County jail is, is probably a mile away. People often just come straight from jail, nowhere to go. They also go right to Skid Row. You can get a meal there. You know, if you have nothing, if you have nothing in your pocket, Skid Row is not the worst place to be. Hmm. Interesting. Hey, where does the name Skid Row come from? From what I understand, uh, when the uh, uh, railroads were being built uh, across America, there's a lot of a lot of uh, men who were working on the 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 railroads, and so they kind of would build them as they go, you know, and you, mm-hmm. as they traveled across America, and then you know, as they ran out of money, they'd work again. And then it ended in Los Angeles. Um, and that was the end of the row. That was the end of the skid, skid row. And then a lot of these men who worked on it, kind of like for day wages that they would often drink away at night, all of a sudden they all just ended right, right there. And, and skid row was born out of that. Well, you know, your, uh, your photos are, it's obvious you you connect you you've connected well with the people, and they're very up close and very personal. Um, I mean, how how did you manage to gain the trust of the people in the area? Uh, I I think a mixture of things. Uh, well, I returned a lot. A lot of people come down there to get a photo or a story, and and. And then they leave and they're never to be seen again. Uh, and I was consistent. I, I became so just downright uh, like obsessed with Skid Row that I would go every day. Um, and the more these people saw me returning, you know, I became friends with them. And then I, it also, I didn't always go with my camera, you know, just go mm-hmm. down there and, you know, what's going on? What do you guys need? You know, I could be bringing people food, blankets. You let them use my phone to call somebody. I've given people rides to the hospital, to jail, to see other people. Um, and I think just over time, they realized that I was genuine. You know, I, I truly like love the people down there and I love going down there. Uh, I really just, I don't feel like they're beneath me in any sort of way. To me, it's like going to any of my friends' houses. Their houses just happen to be a tent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just happen to live here as I grew like, I, you know, there's a lot of hardships down there and a lot of people are there because of hardships, but man, there are some wonderful people in Skid Row. They crack me up. They make me laugh. They make me feel so welcome. Or I, I just love connecting with them where I feel like, you know, sometimes they just, they just want to be heard and it, it just means the world to them to have somebody there to actually listen to them and take them seriously. And, uh, you know, it's something that I've come to learn that, I enjoy doing. I enjoy being there for them. What kind of life lessons have you taken away from your relationship with the people there? Well, I, I, yeah, I always say Skid Row continually teaches me lessons. But um, you, we, the people in Skid Row live in a very live in the now moment, which a lot of people who live and I'll just call it the outside world. It's something we all want to achieve, you know. How can I be more in the present? How can I be more aware of what's happening? How can I live more in the moment? Well, the reason that we don't 
as I've come to observe, uh, only from being so close to both sides of life, is that in our world, the outside world, we've got bills to think about. We're not thinking about today. We're continually thinking about, you know, how will I pay rent this month, next month, car payment, retirement, this and that. Um, and these things are continual distractions from our present moment. Um, because we're just, it's just designed to be that way. You know, the only way people connect with that in the outside world is to make a, an effort, you know, to meditate, to like, it's a practice. Mm-hmm. Well, in Skid Row, you wake up and you're hungry and you have nothing. And so you go to find food and then your belly's full. And then you go to see a friend because that's the next thing that's on your mind or whatever is happening is always very present sort of, uh, need satiate, need satiate. And, and it's, it's not that they designed it that way. It just happens to be, you know, what the situation is designed. And because of that, and I believe that a lot of people down there also are down there because of, you know, whatever vices in life or hardships have led them there. They also are so, so honest. So I, I, I just feel like people in Skid Row are very honest and live in the moment. And the reason that they're so honest is because they live so out in the open with all of their vices and whatever it may be. That it, it's shameless in a way that is beautiful uh, because they don't judge each other down there either. Like you can be a drug addict. You can be, uh, a, uh, you know, a sex worker. You could have spent four years in prison. It doesn't matter. What matters is how you come to the table down there. And, mm-hmm. and nobody has money down there. So there's no monetary social, you know, hierarchies of who is this and that. They all fall under the line of poverty down there. They all just live hand to mouth. And it's, it's like a, it's really like a, a, an experiment in, in, in social and human behavior getting to see how the people in Skid Row live and getting to see how people in the outside world live similar in many ways, but so vastly different. And, and the people in Skid Row, honestly, I feel like in some ways live more of a full lives because they're very present in their day to day and the way they interact with each other. So why don't you tell us about your book? Uh, you um, recently published a book called Side, Sidewalk Champions. Yes. And I mean, how did this come about and, you know, well, what, what is this book doing for you or doing for the people of Skid Row? Well, yeah. So Sidewalk Champions is, it's, um, it's about seven or eight years of selected photos. Um, some of my favorite photos I've taken over that time. Uh, initially I set out to, to also write about everybody kind of the way I do on my, my Instagram feed. And do more in depth stories, but uh, pandemic and, and time kind of limited me for my first book. So I just wrote an intro. Um, you know, and the name Sidewalk Champions to me is, you know, these people are the true champions and survivors of life, like the great human spirit. Uh, that's why I wanted to give it a very like uplifting name because that's how I view it. And yeah, it's just, it's like a hundred and I can't remember 40 or 50 photos. Um, and then my friend, uh, Bo Calhoun, he started Burn Barrel Press. Um, he's another photographer that I'm a, I'm a big fan of. He's also kind of grew up in, he was, he grew up houseless or from his teenage years. He like squatted in buildings. He hopped freight trains. Very fascinating guy. Him and I have a lot of similar likes. And he started Burn Barrel Press. So we kind of got together and uh, 
he helped me put out my first book. And, um, yeah, and I just take now, you know, I take my portion of the profits and uh, I just donate them to my foundation. Yeah. Burn Barrel Press seems to have a pretty interesting story too. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's founded by Bo. Um, and I, he's putting out a lot of books of, uh, I think really great work of, you know, people who wouldn't normally be published always wouldn't always be able to find a home, but it all falls around uh, a lot of that kind of fringe culture of some of it's the punk scene or some of it's, you know, like train hopping or kids who, who kind of grew up on these fringe, fringe, like societies or, or, or fringe uh, areas of society. And, uh, he's doing a really great job. Bo's killing it. Yeah, it's, yeah, it sounds sounds very interesting. The um, also another thing I have to ask you about is um, uh, not long ago, my wife watched a documentary about a old hotel in um, in that neighborhood, and it apparently used to be a very upscale, expensive hotel in the old days, and obviously, um, yeah, Hotel Cecil. Yeah, Hotel Cecil. Uh, I think. The documentary is about a murder that took place there. I don't know, but but how does that? How does Hotel Cecil relate to to the Skid Row community? Well, uh, so Hotel Cecil is on on Main Street, and Skid Row used to be come up as far as Main Street, but now it's really been pushed back a block. So the block behind it, Los Angeles Street, is really where Skid Row starts now. Uh, however, you know, Hotel Cecil has been around for, I don't know how long, but Skid Row has been around for over a hundred years and the Hotel Cecil was at a time very much a part of it. You know, you get $2, $2 a night for a room, uh, all kinds of murders happen there. I think Richard Ramirez stayed there. Another serial killer lived there. It's just got this very, very dark past. Um, and you know, it's, Yes, it's where back then it was pimps and prostitutes and place to buy drugs or do drugs, you know, spend a couple bucks a night to sleep. Even if you're houseless, you could scrape up a few dollars and get a room. Um, but I had a studio on Main Street and I could see uh, the Hotel Cecil from from my, my office, my studio. And... <laughs> When the, the, that documentary is about Lisa Lamb, um, but I was in my office one night and I'm like, what? I've never, even in LA, I was like, I've never heard or this many helicopters. So I look out the window and I can see the top of the Cecil and they have a, you know, the tents and they're wearing their bags or, uh, excuse me, they're like biohazard suits. And I pretty much watched them pull her remains out of the water tank that she, she fell into. Um, and you know, at the time I didn't know what was going on and I started, I followed it a little bit more just because, you know, I just happened to see a little bit of what was happening, but now it's become this huge story of people like really follow that. And it's become kind of a, you know, it's kind of a conspiracy. There's all these different ideas that people think would happen, but <laughs> just, another, just another part of LA history, um, you know, sad, sad history. You know, I heard that they. They were trying to improve it, and they fixed up the lobby, and it's really beautiful, and they're trying to attract um, 
tourists to stay there when they're still part of it, still used for low-income housing, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. It was kind of like a mixed bag of like your <laughs> backpacker, like, and, and the lobby is beautiful. You walk in there and you're like, this place is gorgeous and the rooms are, you know, you sometimes it's just like an old rickety mattress. They don't even have bathrooms. You have to go out in the hallway. And, they, you know, it's great. It's like staying in a hostel if you're backpacking. Uh, you just want a place that's a few bucks a night. You don't really care. You're really there to see the sights and and to do the travel thing. But I, I think that, that a lot of people didn't know going into it that you would also get, you know, low income housing or, and, and also I think there was just a lot of seedy people who, who did stay there and they were aware that tourists came and went. So it kind of just set up this very easy prey of like, you understand, they would understand their situation and, and, you know, it's easy to just rob tourists who are coming and going. It's like just turning them over for you night after night. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. So you must have a good handle on like what's wrong and what we can do as a society to fix it. So what do you think we ought to do to well improve these, you know, I get asked this question a lot, like, what could we do to basically end homelessness? Yeah. And the real answer is that it's not one problem, so there's not one answer. And if there mm -hmm. was one answer, it would be so much easier to focus on it. Now, the, the thing that I, I've come to, to learn and understand is the biggest problem that it is also not taken serious enough is, is mental health. Yeah. Uh, and mental illness. So a third of the houseless population in America has mental health issues. That's PTSD, schizophrenia, you know, depression. Uh, and, uh, you know, with Reagan was in the 80s, he closed down a lot of these yep. institutions and just booted the people back out on the street. You know, basically like tough shit. Awful. Um, so. Uh, today we have a lot of people who live on the streets and we also have a lot of people who I hear pe people continually say, um, you know, why don't they pull themselves up by the bootstraps? You know, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're all drug addicts. They yeah. deserve to be there. Why don't they get help? Or, you know, it's their choice. They want to be there. I, I just want to be very clear about this. There is not one person living on the streets who wants to be living on the streets. There are definitely people living on the streets who fear that they can never make it in society ever again because they've lived there so long. And it's easier for them to say, I would rather live here because they don't, because the fear for them of paying bills and keeping up is just so overwhelming, but they truly do not want to live on the streets. Um, and the other thing is there's a lot of people with mental health issues who will never be able to function in our world the way we want them to, you know, the way people want them to. They're not going to hold a job. Uh, they're not going to be able to, to pay rent. They're, they're just not going to be able to do that. And I always believe, you know, in the higher man of, it's kind of like what Nietzsche said, like it's our responsibility as human beings to bring up those beneath us. The ones that aren't able to, to be where we're at, you got to pull them up with you. Now, that might mean a little bit of our tax money goes to paying for people they just need to be, you know, they need care. They need someone to care after them. We need to have buildings where they can live and they need a staff there. 
And I say, great, spend my tax money on that. Spend some of it on there. Um, but unless we really address the problem of mental health, then we're going to continue to have numbers of houseless people on the street. It will never go away until we address that specifically. Now, a lot of mental health issues lead to other things. Drugs are one of them. Because a lot of people self-medicate uh, because they don't have money or to, to go to hospitals, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, being poor is truly, you're like penalized for being poor. The more poor you are, the more things that we end up paying for that the rich do not. And, and that's just how it's, you know, society has been set up. Um, and it's unfortunate, but it's the truth. You know, it, it goes from everything to things as small as like, you go to a poor neighbor, poor neighborhood, doesn't have to be a poor neighborhood. And you, you have street cleaning, you have to pay tickets, but in a rich neighborhood, you don't, but if you don't pay your ticket, it combat, you know, compounds. And I've seen people like be put out from just what started as some tickets to getting a boot on their car to losing their car to losing their job. It's insane that I've ever thought about, you know, how much, how much effect these little things can have on people because of our wallets. Um, but, um, yeah, again, just, you know, mental health is the biggest thing and, you know, there's a lot of systematic things too. I I meet a lot of people down there, you know, they were born into a, a family, like their parents are, are gangbangers. And from a little kid, they're just taught to live a certain life. And a lot of them end up in foster home and then go to juvie and then go to prison. And then when out of prison, what do they have from that entire life? They, they were never given any true options. They were never really taught to understand how to function in, you know, the outside world. Uh, so they learn how to survive in their world. Everybody survives. We're all survivalists. You know, we all learn how to survive inside of our worlds, whatever that is, um, with what's given to us, what's around us. And every now and then, maybe one will rise from the ashes. But usually, we're all kind of kept into our little communities. So that's just another thing. I think it, a lot of it is very systematic, and that people are born into it. It's really hard to get out of um, because you don't have options. And often, the people who are saying, "Why don't you do this?" and "Why don't you do that?" are the ones who have a control of a lot of these options, and they do not want to extend it to a person who is poor, who isn't educated as well as them. Uh, who has a criminal history. So they don't want to take that chance and, and give them. So there's this giant gap of like, sure, you know, let's help them rise up out of it. They're like, cool, but you know, not in my backyard, not, not in the place that I work. Like they, everybody just wants to push that problem off onto somebody else mm-hmm. until somebody deep dives into it and starts really, you know, rolling up their sleeves and saying, this is part of it. And this is part of it. And this is what we can do. It's, it's going to continue. Um, uh, and I, I'm 100% invested in the fight, but I also, I don't have a ton of faith that, um, you know, in my lifetime, we'll, we'll see it completely erased, you know, but it doesn't mean I won't dedicate myself to it. So is there any one person that you've met, one of the, one of the residents of the Skid Row that, that has ha- had a profound effect on you and Maybe that somebody you photographed. It's in the book that you could point out. Well, I I formed a French like a close friendship with a few people, a very close friendship. Um, I guess two people jump out at me in mind. The first guy is Crucio. Uh, Crucio, when I first started coming to Skid Row, you know, I've been I probably been going down there for six months to a year, and I hadn't really. I've been photographing people, but I hadn't like really started con- connect with people. 
And uh, I was really terrified to go like super deep into Skid Row too. So I, every mm-hmm. time I push myself to go a little further and a little further, finally I went pretty far back, um, pretty much to the other end, walked all the way through and I meet this guy and he's, he's watching like his two pit bulls. And I go up to him and I was like, Hey, you know, I tell him my thing, like suitcase chill, photograph of the neighborhood. And he's just kind of like, man, get the hell out of here. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, but you know, I'm also very stubborn. So I was like, well, I'm going to get out of his space, but I'm not going to leave. Um, so I'm just kind of milling about, you know, trying to find something to photograph without putting myself into a bad, <laughs> like a dangerous position. He, call, he calls me back over. He's like, he's like, he's like, just come back over here. And he's like, tell me again what you're doing. And so I just tell him, you know, I want to photograph the neighborhood and share it with the outside world. And he's like, all right. You know, he lets me take his photograph and him and I became friends. And I started going back to hang out with him a lot. He I, he just happened to be somebody who's like a shot caller in the neighborhood. He gets to call a lot of shots in a certain area, you know. And uh, he started introducing me to people. And um, because of him, a lot of people started to have trust in me. Now, he's also went on. He's an artist. And uh, he's just went on to be a really successful artist. I don't – he doesn't have to live down there anymore. He's down there by choice. And uh, he's just been really inspiring for me. Every time I speak with him, he just drops like some new kind of like knowledge where I feel like, I feel like I'm reading a philosophy book. I used to be a really avid reader and I would force myself to read like five hours a day. Um, but I just, the more I've been going to skip row, I just, I just don't read as much. My brain is very satiated in a certain way. But, um, <laughs> and, and then this other guy's name is cricket. Uh, cricket's like my best friend in skid row. Um, and cricket was, he was burned in a, um, he was recycling, you know, back then he was called a fence jumper. So he was sneaking into a building, you know, that was abandoned. Uh, but he, he's one of those people who steal the copper out of it. Um, and he went to this room and he had a wrench in his hand. And this room was, was like the main hub room for all the electricity, which actually was still on in the building. There was so much electricity moving through the room that just him holding the wrench in his hand Ooh. zapped through him. I think he said it, everything turned green and then it, it just, it shot him out the window across, oh across the street. He landed caught on fire and then he passed back out. He woke up two months later. He was in the hospital for, he was in a coma for two months. Um, and he, you know, now he doesn't steal and do that kind of stuff anymore. He just recycles. And he's just the most fascinating person to speak with. And he's, he is so positive. He's, he's 52 now. He's been on the streets since he was 16 years old. And there's just so many times when I go down there with whatever's happening in my outside life. And, and cricket just reminds me so quickly of like, you know, how, how much I shouldn't stress about anything. Uh, that's not important, you know, like don't let these little things stress about you. And he's just, he's the kind of guy too. when he, he'll, he would do anything for me. I would do anything for him. Uh, he's also introduced me to a lot of people, but he's just, he's just so inspirational. I don't think he even knows that he is that to me. He, he's just that because that's his personality. Like many of the people down there, he's just such a true, genuine human being and he wants nothing in return for it that I, I just, I love every time I see him. I'm always like come away much happier. Wow. Wow. Do you have uh, photos of, of 
these two guys uh like yeah. on instagram or yeah they're both on instagram and in the book um cricket you'll be able to tell because he's he's uh his chest is so covered in scars um yeah, he's just very covered in scars. He actually has no nipples because of it, which I didn't notice for like a year. I was looking <laughs> through my photos and I was like, wait a second. <laughs> um, which I joked around about. But uh, yeah, he's in there. And then uh, Crucio is in there as well. Um, I believe he's uh, he's got a couple of dogs. His his two dogs are in there that, that did pass away because of heat exhaustion in Skid Row. At least one of them did. Yeah, yeah which happens a lot down there. Um, but um yeah i don't have a book in front of me actually <laughs> all right tell you what page yeah maybe maybe we can put a couple put those photos in the uh in the article so people can see them yeah well that's uh i don't know that's quite an amazing story uh you've been through a lot and you've learned a lot and you're certainly helping people out that really need help, but what, what's next for you? Um, well, I, I can't actually say. I mean, I have something that um, I am working on mm -hmm. for, for Skid Row, uh, but I'm just not allowed to announce it yet. Sure. Uh, um, but I will let you know as soon as I am allowed to talk about it, but it's, it'll probably be one of the bigger things that I get to do in my life. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So a little teaser for you. Uh, but yeah, not, I'm not really at liberty, but you know, sure. besides that, I, I'd like to do another book at some point. And then, um, I think when I, I I'm not, I'll never be done with Skid Row, but I will, there will come a point where I'd like to expand my work with other, um, with another community that, that maybe needs some attention that nobody's giving it to. Um, but I, I just feel like that'll rebuild itself to me when the time is ready. So is there all the photos you've taken, do you have a favorite? And if so, what is it? Um, I have a photo of of this young girl who is who is who's bathing in her tent in a. You can't see it in the photo. It's a U.S. postal mm -hmm. um, box. I, it's one of my favorite photos because I think it's just one of the most beautiful and honest and humbling photos I've ever taken. Um, she's literally just bathing in her tent. She's so young and she was just really kind enough to let me in there to photograph her in a very, obviously, you know, in a, in a very honest moment of hers. Um, and I, I didn't stay very long. You know, I just said, you know, I really want to show everybody what's going on in all ways. And, uh, she was like, yeah, that's fine. You can come and take a few photographs of me. And that's the one where she's standing up bathing. Well, yeah, and it's just yeah. also the way the texture. I'm very big into texture mm -hmm. uh, in photos. It's beautiful. Yeah, and just it, 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 it's just for me, it's not only her allowing me to do that, I thought was very beautiful, but it just came out as one of the most beautiful photos that I've taken. So it's, it's one of my favorites, if not my favorite. Yeah, I can see why. I can see why. Uh, that's great. Well, why don't you uh, tell us where people can, can see your work, where they can find you, where they can learn more about the book? Yeah, um, you can always look at my Instagram page, uh, suitcase underscore Joe. And then um, my book is available uh, at Burn Barrel Press or uh, the Suitcase Joe store. Um, 
You just search both of them and you'll find it. I think it's Suitcase Joe, Big Cartel, or Bird Barrel Press. And then uh, I also have uh, Born Out of Everything. I uh, started a foundation with a few other people. Um, it's just suitcasejoefoundation.org. Um, and that is, you know, really to, you know, just help out give back to the people of Skid Row and it's growing to other houseless communities. You know, uh, it's a nonprofit. Uh, I have some great people who, who helped me with it. Um, none of which take a paycheck and a lot of them dedicate a great part of their lives to it. So I'm forever grateful of them as well. That's wonderful. Well, I tell you, tell you, thanks for your time. Thanks for the work you do. And, uh, you know, you're real inspiration to everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really do appreciate it.